So for me, and maybe it just hasn't hit me yet, I, I feel like I was very good at compartmentalizing. And I'm a very empathetic and sympathetic person. But when I was doing the work as a profiler, part of it is you're detached from it. You're not out there at the crime scenes day to day talking to victims, talking to victims' families. I think that stuff can really weigh on the detectives. So there is a bit of distance involved, but I just found the work so fascinating, so interesting. That's Julia Cowley, a retired FBI agent and criminal profiler. Julia spent 22 years in the FBI investigating violent crime, working as an agent, as a member of the famed Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU, and as a criminal profiler. Criminal profiling is an investigative strategy used by law enforcement agencies that goes back at least 140 years to when detectives of the Metropolitan Police Department in London attempted to assess the personality of the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper. Profiling has evolved over the years, moving from a model that focused on behavioral consistency of the offender, the idea that offenders' crimes will be similar to one another, and homology, the idea that similar crimes are committed by similar offenders. As psychology evolves, so is criminal profiling. Homeology has been proven as outdated, The offender's personality, as opposed to situational factors, has become a more determining factor, and profilers now explore the victim's lives, statistics, the criminal act, and crime scenes to build their profiles and investigative suggestions. Profiling has been popularized by television shows like Criminal Minds, where Mandy Patinkin's character, Jason Gideon, and Matthew Gray Gubler's Spencer Reed jet across the country taking over cases and using psychological profiles to catch offenders. And through shows like The Alienist, where a team of characters played by Daniel Brule, Luke Evans, and Dakota Fanning profile and chase serial killers in the 1880s New York. There's probably no more popular depiction of criminal profilers in modern history than Clarice Starling in Silence of the Land. The realities of the work of criminal profiling and the jobs of criminal profilers, which Julia is joining us today to talk about, is much different from those depictions. Profilers often support local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies in what the character Frank Pimbleton in David Simon's Homicide Life on the Streets television series calls whodunits, easier to solve crimes that often do not, as he says, fit into the holy trinity of murder, drugs, money, and the romantic relationships between men and women tend to be easy to solve. The types of cases that profilers join are some of the toughest. I first heard about Julia when listening to a recent episode of the Prosecutor's Podcast, one I would recommend, and I was struck by the difference between the reality that she painted and what both fictionalized versions and many of the so-called profilers who get airtime say. As a profiler, Julia investigated high-profile crimes that made the national news, including the person who's now known as the Golden State Killer, 
a rapist and killer who terrorized California in the 1970s and the 1980s. She also investigated two seemingly unconnected cases that came into the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, the 2011 killing of 50-year-old Bill Courier and 55-year-old Lorraine Courier in Essex, Vermont, and the 2012 murder of 18-year-old Samantha Koning, who was killed in Anchorage, Alaska. Both cases were later linked to Israel Keyes, who once said, after his arrest, that he noticed something was different about himself when he read about Ted Bundy and other similar killers in a book called Mindhunter that was written by two trailblazing FBI profilers. Julia also investigated cases you may have never heard of, like the tragic murders of 11-year-old Skyla Whitaker and 13-year-old Taylor Placker, best friends who were murdered while walking down a dusty dirt road in Oklahoma. Like most behavioral sciences, from psychology to economics, profiling may be more of an art than science, but Julia's background is in both areas. She has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Oregon and a master's degree in forensic science from George Washington University. And before she joined the FBI, she was a special agent and forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. FBI profiling has increasingly become a part of the news as true crime communities have exploded and more and more people are following and commenting on cases like the 1996 murder of John Benet Ramsey, the murders of 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German, who videotaped their alleged abductor on a bridge before being killed in Delphi, Indiana, and the brutal 2022 home invasion stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho college students, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gunclavis, Zana Kernoodle, and Ethan Chapin. Today, we're going to discuss what profiling is and isn't, and what the true lives and work of FBI criminal profilers are with Julia. We're going to try and separate the fact from fiction and explore the lives of the real humans who take on the daunting role of living their lives, thinking about, and helping solve violent crimes. This is the first of two episodes with Julia. The second episode will drop next week. So, Julia, I just wanted to thank you for joining us today. I, I also wanted to tell you just a little bit about how, and I think you know this, I came across you I was listening to the Prosecutors podcast by Brett and Alice, and I think we're both fans of it. And they had you on, and it really struck me, you know, all the FBI profilers and criminal profilers I see on TV or I hear on different things. I just thought, like, your description of what profiling was and what it could do and what it couldn't do was so sort of, I think, level-headed, reasonable, and insightful for me that I, you know, I reached out to Brett and I was like, Brett, what do you think? Should I have her on? And, you know, he really encouraged me to, to reach out to you to um, have you on. So thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for reaching out to me and I appreciate the feedback. I, I think too, I can be a little boring because it's not as exciting as maybe people see on TV. So people don't want me on because it's not too exciting. And I don't, I try not to 
I guess, make things more than what they are. Yeah. But I, you know, I actually found for me in listening to the way that you described it, sort of like the realistic role of it, I actually found it way more interesting. I know subtle and nuanced, but I really did find it a lot interesting. I mean, a lot more interesting than some of the, you know, the descriptions that people commonly give. And I was going to ask you just really quickly and, you know, how did you become a profiler? How did you get into this space of, of, you know, working in law enforcement and becoming a profiler? Well, it is something that I always thought I wanted to do from a very young age. I, I've been a true crime fan and I stole, my mother was reading Helter Skelter and I was in middle school at the time. I was pretty young and I asked her, oh, can I read that? I read the cover of the book. She said, no, it's not appropriate. But once she put the book down, I grabbed it and read it. Helter Skelter, that was the Manson book? Yes, it it was written by um, the uh, Vincent Bugliosi, who prosecuted the Manson murders and Charles Manson. And I really liked talking with Brett. And I thought that was a great conversation because he's a skeptic. And I think when you have to defend your work, you're at your best (laughs) and you're trying to explain it. The reason why you're skeptical is because what you have seen in the media. And I think talking with him about it, I, I, I hopefully made him a believer. So I'm just yeah. going to give you a little background on Brett. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. From listening to the podcast, like one of his favorite lines is, ah, this behavioral science stuff. But I think you did sort of win him over. I mean, what he told me was, she is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> And, you know, listening to his podcast and listening to Brett and Alice and they go through the cases, when I reached out, I I had I didn't think Brett was going to be like, you're just full of it because what they do on their show is is in some some of the cases, I wouldn't say they do this in all of their cases, but a lot of the analysis they do is behavioral analysis. And I think it's done well. They don't jump to conclusions. They base they base their opinions on the evidence. They base their opinions on what they know about that individual and that individual's past behavior and things like that. All the logical things. They're they're just not guessing. And and it's, you know, like you heard Brett and I talk about, it's not about, oh, someone looks up and to the left, they must be lying. And, oh, they're too emotional or they're not emotional enough. That, that, That kind of stuff doesn't mean much to me in and of itself. <laughs> so it, so I, I had a feeling if I just reached out and explained and we talked about it uh, more, he'd, he'd have a better understanding. And, and I really just said, I just had sent him a message. I said, you're actually, you're a great profiler. You would have made a great FBI profiler. And he's like, Hey, want to come on the show? <laughs> so, yeah. So one of the, to me, one of the interesting things like you just hit on, one of the core things about like profiling people or reading people in my experience, both working as a reporter and then also working in psychology is that if you don't know the baseline for the person, whether they look left, whether they look right or whether they're shaking their leg means absolutely nothing, but it's really like, I think a deeper piece of it is being able to pick up on people's 
patterns and being able to match them to what you're seeing in front of you. And I was, I was telling somebody recently that I can pick up when somebody is moving outside of their pattern after I've known them for a year or after I've researched them in a giant way, but I can't really tell just because I'm sitting down in front of them for the first time. So I imagine it's the same way in an investigation. So what was it for you that sort of led you down this path of of going to the FBI and becoming a profiler? Well, as I mentioned, I, at a very young age, was very interested in true crime. It's I read all the books. I started with Helter Skelter after my mom told me that I wasn't allowed to read it. She Once she put it down, I grabbed it, I read it. And from then on, I read every true crime book I could get my hands on. And I just knew somehow, some way, I want to solve murders or be involved in some way in these investigations. And then I read, I was heavily influenced by reading <laughs> true crime. And the next book I read that sort of focused me was The Blooding by Joseph Wamba, which is the story of a serial killer who was caught um, by the use of DNA. And this was a case in the UK. And it was the first time they used DNA to convict an offender. And I also read John Douglas's Mind Hunter. And I think it was about that point that I realized, okay, I I really think someday I want to be an FBI profiler. And, what does yeah. it say on your Twitter profile? It it says something like you, you know, you became an FBI agent and a forensic scientist because of your interest in true crime and you aren't ashamed of it. Did I get that close? That's exactly right. I had read um, another tweet by somebody who said, you know, she's not going to be shamed for being a fan of true crime. And I thought I won't be either. It led to my career. I think I did some really good work throughout my career. I loved doing it. I think I helped people. And again, my it's, it's all I really like to be. I like sports too. <laughs> but, but really, when I sat down and I was thinking, well, you know, what do, what, what do I want to do? What do I want to do when I go to college? What do I love? And, and my dad always told me, you know, do what you love, the money will follow. And I'm like, what do I love? I love true crime. That's what I love. I want to do something. And then I, you know, back in the day, you know, when I was in high school, there were these big books that we had and you were books of different majors and stuff. And it was like a big encyclopedia. And I was just going. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm old enough to remember those. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I saw police science. And really, it was a description of forensic science and working in a crime lab. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I love that. And I I liked science and I liked chemistry quite a bit. So majored in chemistry in college. And then I got my master's degree in forensic science. And then I went and worked. And I I don't want to say then I went and worked. I, I applied to many different or at least submitted an application to many different agencies across the country. And And by the time I'd finished grad school, I had gotten a job at a biotech company out in Palo Alto. And so I was using my skills as a chemist, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do. And I worked there for about 11 months. And then I had gotten a call to be interviewed at the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And then I went out and I went out to Nashville, Tennessee, got interviewed, and they ultimately hired me. And I 
put all my belongings into a rented Ford Taurus and drove across the country and, <laughs> um, and moved to, to Tennessee, a place I'd never been other than when I went out to interview with TBI. It was wow. the best decision of my life, the best decision. When I look back, should I do this? And, you know, I had applied to the Oregon State Police Crime Lab, and I was applying for a position. There was like four positions, and there were 100 applicants, and they were interviewing 40 people, and that's what they told me. And I guess I was lucky I made the cut to be interviewed, but I, I do remember one of the people interviewing me saying, well, we're interviewing, you know, PhD chemists. And I'm like, I don't have a shot to be at the Oregon state police, <laughs> which is, you know, that's my home state. And that's where I, I wanted to be, or was hoping to be, but I thought, you know, this is an opportunity. I got to take it. And it, again, it was the best decision to go there. I got some of the best training. I worked in a laboratory that back in those days, it was accredited and they were very proud of that. And even at that time, the FBI lab wasn't accredited. And so they were, you know, way beyond what I think other labs were at the time. And I learned how to process crime scenes. I worked in the laboratory. I I got some really good training. And then a colleague of mine that I really respected, he was a DNA analyst in the lab. And I was a toxicologist, so we were in different units. But he applied to the FBI, and he became an FBI agent. And we kept in touch, and he would tell me about some of the work he was doing. And I thought, gosh, that's I think I want to do that. And I, I really I really like John Douglas's book, and I think I want to be a profiler. <laughs> and so, And it, it wasn't that simple, but that's really what I was thinking. I, I said, I, I, I may not ever have a chance. I may never get into the behavioral analysis unit, but I do want to be an FBI agent. I think that's what I want to do. I How many profilers are there in the FBI at large and in the BA? I, I'd say about 40 right now. Okay. I'm just trying. I, I'm not really sure. At the it's, time not a that, large, it's not a large number of people. No. In, in fact, when I was in grad school, we had an FBI agent come talk to our class. And this was shortly, not too long after the Silence of the Lambs came out. So a lot of people were going to school to become FBI profilers. <laughs> and we had an FBI agent come talk to some students in my program. And one of the students asked, you know, what are the chances that we could get into the behavioral analysis unit? And I remember he held up his hand and, and, and you know, signed zero like zero chances. Right. Because I, when I was reporting and this may be dated, but I think there were like 12,000, 13,000 total FBI agents. And you're, you're talking about about 40. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's about right. Yeah. And, but when he said zero, I, you know, me, I'm very literal. I said, that's impossible. I didn't, I said it to myself. There is no way it can literally be zero. Come on, I'm a scientist. You know, and and every time during, you know, when you come in contact with an FBI agent or a recruiter or anything like that, anytime, and even when I got into the FBI, there's a lot of like, it's just not going to happen. You're just going to have to realize it's very difficult to get into the unit. It's not, it's not very big. And so if you're joining the FBI, just with the thought, you're just going to walk in and be a profiler, then maybe this isn't the right job for you. So I, I understood that. And I thought to myself, you know, I enjoyed being a, you know, a case agent and working. I worked in the Boston office and I worked white collar, public corruption, civil rights, loved it. I was also a member of the evidence response team and 
then I became what we what we call is like the coordinator for the Boston office for the behavioral analysis unit, which means I'm a liaison between all of our local departments in the Boston division and the behavioral analysis unit. So I kind of hooked them up and people would come to our office, well, we want this case profiled. And so then I would put them in contact. And that was my job, a liaison. I wasn't a profiler, but um, I I did get selected to, and and that was sort of my, my first foot in the door. Like, okay, maybe I can do this. Yeah. 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 But it, it wasn't easy. I remember when I first got into the FBI, I was assigned to bank fraud. And I just thought, bank fraud. But again, at the time, everyone was saying, if you get into the FBI, you're more likely to be sign- assigned to a white collar squad. So again, I understood that. I I, <laughs> I, I, I realized I pro- I'm not going to walk right onto a violent crime squad. But when I got there, I did talk to the violent crime supervisor. And I remember telling him, I'd like to be a profiler someday. And he said, well, that's really scary stuff. And (laughs) interesting. Interesting. So, but but I just kept, you know, I just kept at it. I just, you know, and then by the time, let's see, I'd been in the FBI for about 10 or 11 years and then opening. um, And you had asked how many um, agents are at the BAU. At the time, there were three units. Now there are five. I think, and and I could be wrong, um, but there there were three units, and it was the Crimes Against Adults Unit, the Crimes Against Children Unit, and a unit that encompassed terrorism and threats. So I had applied to the Crimes Against Adults mm-hmm. Unit. That was specifically what I wanted to do, and there were eight profilers, well, seven profilers when I applied at the time. And I, I believe the other units had about the same amount, maybe give or take a little more. I think there were more in the terrorism unit. So I I don't know the exact number, but you know, the, the unit I wanted to be in, you know, in, in, which is really a lot of the work that the FBI is known for the crimes that are bizarre and repetitive and unusual, that's the unit I wanted to be in, you know, the serial murders and serial rapes and things like that. And so I applied and I was fortunate to be selected. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I, I still, but you know, I, I also know I'm just somebody I don't ever give up and I, I believe in myself and you know, I'm not the smartest person. I wasn't the best athlete. I'm not the, you know, the greatest at anything, but there's one thing I do know. I I never give up. I try very hard and I, I really do believe it's just perseverance. So, you know, looking back when a lot of people discouraged me and said, oh, it's really hard to get into that unit. I just thought I'm never going to be like that. I'm going to tell everybody who ever asked, you can do it if I did it. Right, (laughs) right. Right. I mean, I went to a very small high school. I there's there's nothing about me that's exceptional. Like, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not putting myself down. I'm just saying, I'm just, I really am just like a regular person who had their eye on an extraordinary type of job. And, but I do absolutely believe if I can do it, anyone can do it. So anytime anybody ever asks me, well, that's what I want to do. And I'm like, you can do it. You just can't give up. And you have to be willing to sometimes sacrifice things and move and and do a lot of different 
types of work in order to become qualified to be in that unit. So there, there's steps you have to take, but anyone can do it. Oh, that's awesome. There's something to be said for persistence and, and the idea that, yes, we do measure plenty of things like the best athlete, the academics, but that doesn't really measure the the whole person. I am, I'm going to make a plug for your podcast real quick. I know it's on hiatus, but it's called The Consult, and I, I found it powerful. Hopefully, you'll be bringing it back soon. <laughs> one of the cases that you profiled uh, and one of the cases that you talked about on the podcast was the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist cases, which eventually were linked to what became known as the Golden State Killer. And then there were um, two cases that you described, you know, uh, one in Vermont and then one in Alaska that were ultimately that you guys had separately but were ultimately linked to the serial killer, probably the only serial killer that actually puts me on my heels listening to him, um, Israel, Israel Keys. Because I'm, I'm not a real big, uh, you know, believer in the idea that like serial killers are all that ridiculously different than, than many other people. They definitely are unique. They do things that are absolutely horrendous. You'll laugh at this, Julia. You're going to totally laugh at this. So when I was young and I was in high school, we had a uh, at church, we had something called Youth Sunday. And I was picked because uh, everyone was very silly to give the sermon. And the sermon that I gave, and I swear, half the room uh, looked aghast and the other half of the room was like clapping and smiling. But I gave like the a sermon on how like if we are really Christians, like we should be willing to forgive even people like um, Jeffrey Dahmer. And where I think that came from inside me, inside of high school me, is my deep desire to just understand people and understand why things happen. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of those like high profile cases and and what sort of like the the role of a profiler in those kinds of cases are. Sure. And I just want to go back to your point where you say you're trying to understand people. And and that's that's what this is about. And it's not passing judgment. It's not <laughs> saying you can't. I, I, th- that just doesn't come into my, my head. I mean, if I were to think about it just in my personal life and, and not my work mind, I'd be like, that is a horrible person. And, you know, really yeah, bad. Yeah, he's not coming over for dinner. <laughs> But, you know, looking at these cases, you, you really do have to be just very adge- objective. And I don't put a lot of my personal opinions. It's just not my personal opinion about their character. It's what do they, the crimes they're committing and how they're committing those crimes. Why are they doing that? And what does that say about them? And it's not a judgment. And it's the same thing with looking at the victims, you know, why the victims were selected we need to know a lot about the victims and we are asking and inquiring about really personal things. And it's not about passing judgment. It's about understanding what their life was like, what they were like, what put them at risk to be this person's victim. And and that's what it's about. It's just, it, it's really just about understanding that and you can't really have emotion about it. I remember talking to a New York City detective when I was in New York, and he made a point to me that I, it was super profound to me. We, it was the middle of the night, 
and we were sitting outside. I think it was in Brooklyn. It was either in Brooklyn or Queens. And some guy had been been shot. And we were standing at the crime scene because we, you know, in the unlike the day shift, in the midnight shift, in the late shift, the the detectives will actually talk to the reporters. And what he said to me was, "You got to know who put the bullet out there." And I was like, well, "What do you mean?" I was like, "Obviously, whoever shot it." He's like, "We all do things that put ourselves at varying levels of risk." And I think sometimes people have a hard time with that aspect of profiling that idea of examining the victim. But tell me a little bit about how, like in those cases, it's relevant to understanding the crime, the crime scene, the criminal act, and the offender. Well, you talked about the Israel Keys case. And with that, that that case was, it still just boggles my mind because I remember in 2011, when we got the first case, and I was not the lead profiler. You, you mentioned on my podcast, the consult, my co-host on there, one of my co-hosts, Bob um, Drew, he was the lead profiler on this particular case. And it was you know, this couple, and they just disappeared out of their home. There was clearly something that had happened. There was a broken window. So something had happened to them, and they were kidnapped. They just disappeared. And, you know, it's like, well, where do you start in terms of obviously you're processing the crime scene? And and we got involved very early. The local police department had come to the FBI very early on because this is not something they had ever seen before. And it was extremely strange and troubling. And we we start off in terms of what we're looking at. Okay, tell us everything you have at this point. Like, we want to know the crime scene and what did you find and what what evidence has been processed and what can you tell us about the evidence that has been processed? But again, this was still early on, so we didn't have a lot of lab results back yet. But it came down, okay, we need to do a very thorough analysis of these victims. Like what put them at risk? I mean, they lived in a very safe area, low crime rate. They didn't really have you know too much risk either one of them that we knew about at the time and so we like that was one thing we told the the investigators you really have to go back and look at their victimology and it turned out that you know, there were some little things that were a risk i mean the the male victim was online and, and talking with people online and that could put you at risk cuz you're exposing yourself to you know people outside your world and you don't necessarily always know who you're talking to. So that, that could have elevated his risk, but there really wasn't anything there. And then, so it started and there wasn't anything in terms of his family or, and and it was the same for his wife. There wasn't, they just really were not that high risk. And so you kind of start thinking, okay, could this be a random act? And then, you know, some of the invested, their, their cars found a couple miles away and, and you just start thinking, okay, this is somebody who has randomly selected their house, gone in and kidnapped them. But for what? There wasn't anything stolen necessarily. It just and and so what 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 were they wanting? And and were they looking just to kill somebody? Were they looking to sexually assault? And so that's kind of how you start to go through a case like that. So that moment, it it just didn't add up to any of the statistics that you would see normally in crime or, or in violent crime, or even in that area. So you were looking at data from the area, data more broadly, 
like the patterns that you normally see and it was like who done it yeah it was a lot of you, you do look at you take into account statistics and probabilities and and that's why this is not exact because there's always the outlier or something strange or something you don't know about that you haven't taken into consideration you you your profile is only as good as the information that's provided you. But yeah, you have to kind of go back and look at what do the statistics tell us? What does this tell us? And, and, but then, you know, as you start going through, okay, that doesn't quite fit and that doesn't quite fit. And so now, now we have someone who, who came into this community, who's probably not a member of this community that kidnapped these people. Why did they kidnap that person? Well, there's, you know, few motives, ransom, sexual, you know, so, you know, it, it starts to kind of come together and piece together. But what was so unusual about this case is that I, I was like maybe a year later, you have Samantha Koenig who goes missing and she's kidnapped out of a coffee kiosk in Anchorage, Alaska. And they had it on camera. The offender jumps in, grabs her and t- takes her out. And that was also something that we were contacted very early on in the investigation and, you know, there was potential communication with the offender wanting money. And so we were advising on that and, and giving investigative advice. Oh, so there was a ransom element to that one? Or- yeah, he was trying to get money, uh, money deposited into her account so he could withdraw it with ATM cards. And, but, and he was also sending photographs of her to oh wow people. yeah and th- was, were they before she was dead after she was dead th- th- they were they were after she was dead and they but they he had made her try he, he put makeup on her tried to make it look like she was still alive and and we got those pictures and and I, what I will say I want to put this out there because there are other podcasters out there that have put pictures out of her that say that these are the pictures and there are not. They're not the pictures of her. Those are fake. Anything out there, the the pictures of the victim have never been released. They have only Mm. been seen by law enforcement and prosecutors as far as I know, but they're not on the internet. And there are, uh, like I said, other podcasters who have posted them on their websites. That's not her extremely upsetting to me, <laughs> but yeah. well, um, no worries here. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, I know. I'm not worried about that, but I just want to put that out there because even though it's not her, it's still horrific. <laughs> it's just horrific. Right. And why would you even do that anyway? <laughs> just well, and, and to me, that but, sort of like strikes me as a completely outside of like the sort of home invasion slash work invasion. I just off the top of my head, I'd be like, these are definitely not there you know, were, Alaska, Vermont. I mean, exactly. And, and this, this again goes back to you cannot. Could you get further? <laughs> well, you know, we didn't have to get too much further because he was eventually pulled over. The ATM started to be used. He was pulled over. I, I think he was arrested in Texas, and so that they they caught him pretty quickly. And when they were interviewing, we we provided um, interview suggestions, although he wasn't a difficult person to interview. Like he wasn't denying it. He was talking um, and he, in, but it was like completely shocked us. I, I shock is not the right word, but it may, that's about as close as I can get 
that he connected that case to the case in Vermont. He was so matter-of-fact about it, as I recall. And is he the one, do I have this right? He's the one who, you know, would years before plant weapons and other things in certain parts of the country, then return on trips, retrieve the weapons, then pick his victims? Is that? that Yes. Yes, he, he did say, and there is evidence that he would bury items that he would use in future crimes. He, he traveled. He traveled a lot. So there are likely other cases out there that he's responsible for. I know, you know that'll be a, a lifelong project for investigators to try to connect some unsolved homicides to Israel Keys. But yeah, that's that is he did say that he did that, and there is evidence that he did do that in a couple of the cases. And yeah, he he was very matter of fact. And you know, some of that is just, you know, to for his shock value, you know, just to be like, yep, I did it, you know, and and but you know, we were we were surprised that they were connected. There's just they're they're very different types of cases and but they you know they both had a sexual motive they both involved kidnapping but because they were you know so far apart in terms of geography it just it just didn't really connect that these could be connected until he until he confessed and if he hadn't we would never have known that he was responsible i mean did you guys I- ever get a good read on sort of what made him tick? Like, did you ever feel like you had a good understanding of him? Yeah, I I think we can. Yeah, I think we had a pretty good understanding of him. And it's not, it's not too complicated. He's not a complicated individual. He thought he was better than everybody else. He looked down on everybody and he had violent sexual fantasies. And and that's really what it comes down to. And I I don't want to say it's just like, that's, it's that simple, but (laughs) He, oh he, well, he, you know, mix some bad fantasies with some with some sexual elements and a little bit of narcissism. That can be a deadly combo. Oh sure, and insecurity as well. That's another combo. Sort of that, that fragile I narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, is he is he deeper than that? Not not really. He wasn't. He's not a. He was smart in the sense of, you know, he's going he's not going to commit multiple crimes in the same area and draw attention to the fact that there's a serial killer in the area. So there were some decisions that he made, and some of it was just because that's what he he did. He liked to move around, he liked to travel, and he traveled extensively. But um so so it was smart in those terms. But if you you know read his confession letter and his writings and you know, just his life, he's he's really not this genius serial killer and he's pretty sad and pathetic, but you can be sad and pathetic and be extremely dangerous. Yeah. And I think because people get away with things, we have this tendency to turn them into brilliant, if that makes sense. Like if, if we can't catch them, I mean, I'm not talking about profilers, but uh, us as the general project uh, public, they must be somehow quite brilliant. How did you did you feel the same way about the original Night Stalker East Area Rapist, or was he a different? As I recall, he was in 2018. He was eventually caught because of DNA and some genetic genealogy. But I think you guys had had linked the cases. What was 
what was your read on him? I know you were, the, I believe you were the lead on that one, right? Yes, I was the lead on that. And you're right. Some of these killers, because they evade capture, they're thought to be really smart and really brilliant. And, and that is not the case. I think generally serial killers are probably really just very average people, some smarter than others, some dumber than others. They can be criminally smart. And, you know, it's, it's just really hard to, there, there's, it's, it's not easy when someone commits a crime, you really have no idea who did it, even if they're not that smart or not, that, you know, brilliant or, you know, it doesn't make them brilliant. It's just hard. You have to gather the evidence that takes time. In, in the case of the Golden State Killer, Joe D'Angelo, he was not particularly smart, but he's not dumb either. And he had law enforcement training and that helped him. And he was athletic so he could run fast. And you know, there were a couple of times where things didn't go his way and he was chased and almost caught, but he got away. But, you know, looking at the actual, all the cases and I, and I had the benefit of being able to read all of the incident reports of all the rapes and the people that survived and I got a really good insight into how he was committing his crimes, what he was saying to the victim. He talked a lot. Oh, he did. He did talk a lot. He, and what was so interesting is he, he talked and said things that were completely unnecessary. And you have to ask yourself, why is he saying that? Like he, <laughs> he would threaten and oh, these, these over-the-top threats and he would claim that he was in the military and he would claim he had you know seen these people at like the military base and so it's like all of this why is he trying to create this perception do you think he was trying to satisfy some kind of emotional need yeah definitely i think he felt extremely weak and ineffective. And all of this was his way to compensate for that. And that, I mean, that was part of the fantasy. Does that him, explain yeah. some of the escalation? Because I know he started at rape and I, I hadn't really thought about that piece of it. I, I think you guys mentioned on the podcast, he started at with rape and then after some resistance, he started killing everyone. Is that right? So like yeah, maybe yeah. that came from an element of insecurity, feeling as if you can't control situations. Definitely. Yeah. So in like in his the crimes that he committed, they, you know, he wanted to appear bold and intimidating and macho and sexually powerful. Um and, and really what he was was fearful, intimidated himself, sexually inadequate. And, and I think he, these were all his feelings. And so, yes, I think the escalation was part of that need of his to control things and, and killing someone is the ultimate control. And what's interesting about the escalation is that as he was escalating or as he was doing the rape, some things went really wrong and he lost control of the scenes and in one case, he had to kill for the first time, and he had to shoot and kill. And I thought, like, okay, this is – he has lost control, and this is not acceptable. He didn't and only shoot? No. he only The only time he shot people is when 
there things got out of hand and he had to get out of the situation immediately and he would he would shoot to kill and he did and uh, so, so he wanted to be physical i remember he tied people up yeah so he was getting some gratification out of like even though they were tied up which probably doesn't take much effort to beat someone tied up but that physical act of harming them was some of what he was getting gratification yeah. from is that right yeah i you know, it, it, he's he was interesting in that when he was committing the sexual assaults, there wasn't a lot of gratuitous violence. Most of the violence that he engaged in was reactive. Like if, if a victim wasn't compliant, he might hit her or usually hit them if they didn't comply and he would become violent. But when he was actually committing the sexual assaults, they were, you know, in terms of, you know, physical, like physically hitting someone or abusing them, they, they weren't, they weren't violent. In fact, one victim called him gentle and I don't mean that in a good way, but he didn't physically hurt her in terms of, you know, making, you know, making her bruised or bleed. He didn't hit her, but she also complied uh, with him. Um, so that was, so there's not a lot of gratuitous violence involved in the actual sexual assaults. What I think happened as he lost control of a couple of situations and this sort of, I don't want to call it a spiral, but this was just, you know, not acceptable. And he wanted again to have complete control. So after you know he went into these houses and did what he was going to do which included ransacking the houses and burglarizing them and sexually assaulting the women and it would be a pattern you go back and forth ransacking sexual assault and then i think leaving them tied up and then he bludgeoned them i don't i don't think the bludgeoning was necessarily i don't want to say it's not sexual because it it, it probably is, but it was really just sort of the last thing this show ultimate control. And that was really mm -hmm. what this was about. He, he was a very, or at least felt like he was a very ineffective person. And this was sort of the ultimate overcompensation of that. And was he particularly smart? I don't think he was particularly smart in terms of IQ. He was criminally smart. He had been a police officer during some of this, some of his crimes, but you know, he, he was, he was good at being a criminal and there's, there is a difference. Someone can be like really, really smart person, but they're not really good at being a criminal. And then oh, I'd be a terrible someone. criminal. You'd find my nachos on the floor and my spilled coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and then, of yeah, other things. yeah. And then you have people that are really good criminals and they're good because they've done it and they know how to be a good criminal, but doesn't necessarily mean that they have high IQs or that they're brilliant or anything like that. And, and like I said, most are not, most of your serial killers are just, pretty basic and average in terms of, right. of in terms And I of think some of those, like some of that narcissism, the fragile narcissism seems to have driven both of them. And then the added bonus of those obsessive compulsive behaviors probably make it. And I'm not, not to say that every serial killer is that way because you do get people like Dahmer where, you know, serious mental health issues are at play and other things along those lines. But we sort of create myths out of them sort of in the same way that I sort of see that we kind of create myths about 
profilers, right? Didactic memory that you could be walking in the grocery store and see somebody who's, you know, six feet tall, 20 years old, like, you know, uh, has a goatee, and then all of a sudden realize that must be the killer. I was going to ask you some of those common descriptions of criminal profilers. I think of people like Jason Gideon from Criminal Minds, or you mentioned Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs. I sort of, I get the vibe that some of it just borders on humorous fiction. And I wanted to ask you, what is the day-to-day life of being a profiler? Like, I don't know if I told you about this, but the first uh, profiler I ever met, I don't know if you worked with him or, or a profiler, first person who worked in the, in the, he worked in behavioral analysis, but it was this uh, doctor named Anthony um, Pisanata. I got his, I I probably mispronounced his name, but he, um, he was also, if you can get this, he was the Monsignor, the Catholic priest. Oh, he was also, in addition to being a psychologist and FBI agent, he was at the Catholic priest at the parish down the street from where I grew up. I didn't meet him there. I actually met him on 9-11. It was actually the day after 9-11. And it just struck me, wow, you're a lot different than the depictions I've seen. So I was going to ask you, what is the day-to-day like? And what are the, what kinds of people get into this work? Only the most brilliant people. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're an argument for it, I think, despite your uh, discussion of your averageness. (laughs) I've already dispelled that myth, actually. But so the day-to-day life is, it's not boring. I will tell you that. At least it wasn't to me, but it is very much a desk job. You are looking through reports and looking at crime scene photos and reading. No flying on jets across the country, sipping (laughs) wine as you come back? Unfortunately, no. We did not have our own private jet. We flew coach and government rate. (laughs) So So small seats and no snacks. Yeah. So, but, you know, to me, it was, that was exciting to me. And it is very different than being an agent in a field office like Boston and, and, you know, we have 56 field offices across the country. And that, that is a very active job. You are interviewing people, you're going to court, you, you, depending on the kind of work you might be doing processing crime scenes or looking through documents, but it's really active. And it's, it's also, you have a lot of autonomy. You can go out and like, oh, wait a second, I think I want to go try to find this person and interview them. And you can go out and, and, you know, go out with your partner and, and do things like that. And at BAU, it's, it's very different. You kind of slow down and, and you are looking and reading and taking notes and compiling lists. And it, it really is just like looking over every detail of a case that's been submitted to you, all all of the investigative reports, putting together timelines. And so you, you don't get out a lot. Some of the times the cases, depending on the case, we would travel to go view the crime scene or crime scenes. You know, for example, I I traveled on a couple of my cases and like and even in the Golden State Killer, I went out and looked at um, most of the crime scenes. I don't think I saw every single house, but uh, went out there. And um, so so that that's the travel you do. But unlike the shows, we're not 
interviewing people. We're not arresting people. That's not our involvement. We are no taking over the case. Not at all. It, you know, that's the, one of the things we tell the detectives, this is your case. It remains your case. This is just a second set of eyes to go over the case and, and provide you information. That information, depending on the case, there's a lot of different things. You, you might, they might want a profile of an unknown offender, which is, okay, look at this crime and tell us the type of person that committed this crime. But you also might be, you might know who did it and they might want an interview strategy, how to interview an offender, how to interview certain witnesses, statement analysis, if there's writings involved, media strategies, how do you deal with the media? Linkage analysis, that was something I had done in the Golden State Killer case, linking cases together that couldn't be linked through DNA. Mm. So so there's there's a lot of other aspects to profiling other than just creating that um, profile. So and and so it's a lot of reviewing things and sitting at your desk and calling the detective and saying, Hey, do you have this or do you have that? <laughs> and And so you might even say, try this, and then they come back and find out that's not it, and that helps shape you, and then try this. So it's not this idea that you have certainty, but you're able to use your expertise to point them in different key directions. Do I have that right? Yes, and and I would say that's pretty good. There's really no certainty in profiling, in in my opinion. (laughs) I I do think I've, I've looked at cases, and I felt pretty good about the analysis that I had done but I'm I'm never a hundred percent sure that it's right because well I will tell you though after listening to your podcast I thought I should never let this woman see my Facebook profile because she's gonna know everything about my life <laughs> I just felt like your analysis of people was really spot on that said well I I, I do my best, um, but I also, I mean, I have been wrong. I think that's what you have to be, you have to admit when you're wrong. And that can be hard for people in law enforcement. We get so fixated and and um, tied to our opinions and it's really hard to accept, oh, I was wrong. And, but, you know, you just go back and you you, real, you figure out why you were wrong. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll know that for next time. And and there's usually a very logical explanation for why you're wrong and, and um, and you know, you just, you, you move on and, and you admit it, but that's the one thing I'll say it, there's just, there really is no certainty just with profiling alone. You cannot solve a case with profiling. Profiling has never solved any cases. If anyone says any different, that is not true. It's the investigators that solve the case. It's the entire investigation, mm-hmm. every piece of it, a profile may help. It may you may provide an interview strategy based on a profile you did of an offender, and that may elicit a confession. That is helpful. The, conf- the It was the interview. It was the confession that solved the crime. It was the work done by the investigators, not the profile. So it's so, really so- support in, is, is one way of looking at it, that it really supports the whole process, not really solves the whole process. Exactly. That's exactly right. You just are supportive. And ultimately, it is the investigator or investigators, depending on how many are, that that make the determination what they find to be useful and what they find to not be useful. And they don't have to do anything that we say. If we say, well, you should go 
talk to this person, or maybe you should dig a little bit over here. They don't have to do that. They can say, no, I I don't agree with you. I think you're wrong. I'm not going to do that. It is their case and it remains their case the entire time. I know we're dealing with a small sample size, but do most profilers, I know you came from the forensic science and chemistry background. Do most have a background in psychology? Because it just seems like you guys need to know so much about so many different sort of aspects of behavioral science and science in general. No, I don't. At least when I was in the unit, I, I would say most of the agents that were in the unit did not have a background in psychology. We had some. We had people like me that had science backgrounds. I think I was the only one that had ever worked in a crime lab and and processed crime scenes. There might have been some people that had been on the evidence response team once they joined the FBI, but but yeah, not not everybody had that background. In in my unit, we had um, somebody who had been an executive with a Fortune 500 company at one point. We had a former police officer that was in the unit, which is, you know, what people think, oh, it's typical stepping stone. But, you know, there weren't that many police officers. We had former attorneys. So there there was a lot of different backgrounds. And you you do need to know psychology. And, and when we go through the training at BAU, we, we do talk about psychology and get classes in psychology. But it's not required that you have a psychology background to be at the BAU. Interesting. That's a that's a fascinating piece of it to really think. You probably benefit from some diversity of perspective and some diversity of people. So I'm going to tell you this funny one. So you would think I would be bright enough to have realized. So when I was a reporter, I was in Manhattan for 9-11. And afterwards, I was convinced, like my dad would tell me, huh, I think you might have a little bit of PTSD, my psychiatrist, my psychologist, anyone who saw me, my friend, probably my neighbors. But, you know, I didn't believe it until one time, years later, I was sitting and I was reading the 9-11 Commission report. And I got to that 102 minutes before the, um, after the Trade Center was first hit and when the building collapsed. And I broke out for the first time in my life in a full-blown panic attack. So that was like in, I don't know, 2007, 8, 9, something like that. So I was like, huh, maybe there's something to this. And of course, I did nothing with it because I'm a numbskull. And so years later, after after the pandemic began, my therapist had given me a project. And she said, how many, because I was just casually talking about life experiences. She was like, how many unnatural deaths have you seen or or been close to in some ways? And so she had me go count. And I counted like 270 unnatural deaths by the time I was 27. So I finally bought into the idea that maybe there was something going on there. And, you know, I just think about that in the context of being a reporter, I'm exposed, I was exposed to a lot of a lot of death, but I was just there for a day or two or three. But you guys as profilers are immersing yourselves in some of the most violent crime. And I, I was just wondering, like, is there you know, is trauma a challenge for profilers? And does the FBI or other law enforcement agencies or government agencies do something to help with that? So for for me, 
and maybe it just hasn't hit me yet. I, I feel like I was very good at compartmentalizing and I'm a very empathetic and sympathetic person. But when I was doing the work as a profiler, part of it is you're detached from it. You're not out there at the crime scenes day to day, talking to victims, talking to victims' families. I think that stuff can really weigh on the detectives. So there is a bit of distance involved, but I just found the work so fascinating, so interesting. It might be the way that I'm wired because I didn't find the work in the behavioral analysis unit, at least for me, I didn't feel traumatized by it. I think I'm somewhat detached from it because I'm not the one processing the crime scenes or interviewing a victim or interviewing victims' families or interviewing the offender. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm removed from that. And so I just found the work so interesting that I was just able to concentrate on it, not really get bothered by it. And although I'm a very sympathetic and empathetic person, it just never bothered me. And I think I was able to compartmentalize really well. And there's some things that I did just mental health wise in terms of I, I like to run. And when I was in the unit, my friend Susan and I would go for runs every morning and it was a time for us to talk. And sometimes we talk about work and sometimes we just talk about other things. And that was just very therapeutic for me. So I think running and I have a really great supportive family. And you had asked about, is there anything that the FBI does to kind of check, or at least not the FBI, but the agencies to check, you know, are, are you holding up mentally with the type of work you do? And then some cases within the FBI, some of the jobs are more, are more stressful than others because you're exposed to violence or you're undercover and you're having to play a role and there's a lot of pressure and you're in a lot of dangerous situations. So one of the things the FBI has is what they call safeguarding. And this is you know, a, a yearly assessment of your mental health. And you go through testing and you talk to a psychologist and it's about a day or two of this mental health assessment. And when I went through, I had a psychologist that I that spoke with me and he said that in terms of my testing, <laughs> that I had a very Pollyanna-ish view of my life, that I had a really positive view of my life. It was very high in comparison to other people in law enforcement and the kind of work that I do. And he said normally he would be concerned about that, but I was also very high on the honesty scale, meaning I wasn't I wasn't answering questions to paint me in the best light. Yeah, so I I'm very familiar with that scale. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, I would answer questions that might make me look bad. And so he felt I was being really honest. And he asked me, why did I think that was? Why did I think that I was happy? And, <laughs> and I, you know, it was the first time I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, I just, and, and really, I do think sometimes it's just like what is going on in your head chemically, like just how you are wired. And I, I just suspect, felt I have a suspicion that it's for some of the reasons, you know, that you, that you guys study when it comes to personality. Some people, you know, they're better adjusted. They have more resilience. So they're able to bounce back th and things. Some people 
are so, you know, it has to do with values. You're so mission oriented that you may be able to jump back from things, or you're so interested in science or something along those lines that you're able to make things clinical and scientific. But I also wonder whether, like, are there some people who just can't, like, can only do two or three years in violent crimes or or yeah, other yeah. things like that without, yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I I, I think everyone is different. I, I remember working during uh, what was, it was a little bit after 9-11, and it was when I was part of the evidence response team for the FBI, and we went down to New York, and we were working in the New York City morgue, and we were assisting with autopsy, Governor's Island, or in the yeah, city. it was it was the crash of Flight Five Eighty Seven, and and we went down there from Boston to help supplement because they were you know the the FBI New York was um, evidence response team was so busy they were at Ground Zero they were out at Fresh Kills so we went down to supplement it and there were people on our team that had never been to a morgue had never been to see an autopsy and some of them who had and it it did affect them in a way that it didn't affect me. Um, I, I still have a, a former colleague who's still traumatized by the, the two weeks that we spent down there. And, um, and then, you know, I had another colleague who could only spend a certain amount of time in the morgue, and then she would go out and, and work in a different area processing um, evidence that we were collecting off the bodies. Because at the time we were there, we weren't quite sure if it was a, another terrorist act or if it was an accident. And so we were there collecting evidence in the event that it turned out to be criminal and, and ultimately did not turn out to be criminal. But that's that's what we were doing. Oh, is, that, is that the one that happened in November over? Yes. Or, yes. So... You know, it's interesting you say that. Guess who was walking up and down the streets of that neighborhood that time? I got a knock on the door on my window. I was in my brownstone in Brooklyn, and my best friend, who was our, uh, also a reporter and lived across the street, started banging on my window, and he was like, get up, get out. I had fallen asleep on my couch, and we drove down there. And I actually think seeing what I saw on that day was probably even more traumatic than me the, for me than some of the some of the other things I'd seen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. It's a small world. Yeah, it, it is a small world. It, but, you know, I, I had come from a background where I had been to a lot of crime scenes. I'd seen a lot of autopsies. And so it didn't impact me. And it, it and I don't want to say it never has, because I think one of the things that was always difficult for me is occasionally when I was with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, we might get called out to a suspicious death and we weren't sure, or, or the, the investigators or, or local law enforcement wasn't sure if it was a suicide or a homicide. And you know, we would go and look at the scene and sometimes attend the autopsies. And when it turned out to be a suicide, and, th and this happened on a couple of occasions for me, I... I just, I, I just, I remember just looking at the people and thinking, what happened? You know, just feeling yeah. like so bad that they came to that decision in their life and, and not quite understanding that. And I think that that kind of stuff gets to me. And I've worked homicide scenes where there's one case where an elderly couple were just sitting in their living room and 
some kids came by, wanted to steal their truck, and they shot and killed them in their living room. And there's there something were- about the randomness and callousness yes. of life sometimes yeah. that's even scarier than the planned, if that yeah. makes sense. It's it's exactly right. That's it's just you. It could be anybody. They they were very low risk, and they just had a a brand new red truck, and that's what put them at risk that day. And but I remember it was this was in December, and it was shortly before Christmas. I went into the guest room, and they had all of their grandkids' gifts wrapped and on the bed, and that hit me. It was hard. So I have those moments. A lot of personal effects can be very difficult. When Egypt Air crashed, and I did participate on that, we had... Is that uh, the one that was in New England where the pilot may have... Yes, yeah. yes. Um, it, it, it it was uh, Egypt, Egypt Air, and it went down um, off of Nantucket. And so I was part of the team that went to help collect the evidence, and I was assigned to the morgue. And there was an area of the morgue that we were putting all the personal effects of the victims out in a big warehouse. And we had tables and tables lined and there were backpacks and books and wallets and just, and that was really hard for me. So I think everybody has like their triggers and personal effects and, and things that remind me, gosh, they, they, they died in the middle of life. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. that's what hits me, I think. But I again, I think that I have good coping skills and I have a very supportive family. I feel very passionate about the work that I do. It's very important. And so I just I kind of I just move on and and I feel I just always feel really lucky that I have the friends and family and the colleagues that I've had throughout my life. That's just how that that is just my view of the world. Um, but I will say I'm not I'm not always like super happy or anything. I worked with a, I worked with a detective once, and this is probably the most accurate description that anyone has ever come up with of me. But I was working with a detective at Boston Police Department. Hey, Charlie, how are you? If you're listening, he said he said <laughs> you are the most cynical, happy person I've ever met. <laughs> I, well, I said, I've been called the smartest dumb guy anybody <laughs> and for, somehow that makes sense right <laughs> you're like I know what you're saying and I, I just think that's it I, I, I have a realistic view of the world and I feel lucky to have the place that I have in the world I, and, I, and I guess that's just how I cope and, and I really do believe that's just how I was made and other people have other things that bother them and they, they fight against and, and I have my little things and I, I've learned how to deal with that. And some people have, have it way worse than I do. And and I understand that, but this is just how I'm made. I have no better explanation to say this is, you know, and that's sometimes, you know, you ask like these, you know, we ask, why are these killers? How, that's just how they are sometimes. (laughs) You know, and you have to understand, okay, this is, and and this is how they are, and this is what they're going to do, and this is how they're going to act, and this is, you know, and and that's kind of how, you know, you start piecing things together, but you sometimes just have to realize we're never really going to know the answer to anything. This is the end of the first of two episodes with criminal profiler Julia Cowley. Return next week, where we'll be talking to Julia about a wide range of additional topics including some current cases that are in the news, 
like the 1996 slaying of John Benet Ramsey, the 2022 University of Idaho murders, and the Delphi murders, and more.